0: This morning we are continuing our two-part study of Psalm 23 because having experienced the recent passing of Lila Goody, we find ourselves as a church family in the throes of great grief and therefore we are in need of God's great comfort. And I know of no passage of scripture that brings more comfort to grieving hearts than Psalm 23. As I mentioned to you last week, over the years this psalm has ministered God's grace to more people during times of sorrow than any other portion of the Bible. And though there are over 100 meaningful words in this little psalm, none are more meaningful in terms of healing broken hearts than the words we read in the very last verse of this psalm, verse 6. For David writes, Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life and I'll dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Now this concluding verse of Psalm 23, it's been called the sixth string on David's harp. And it's one that sounds a note of confidence, a note of great assurance. And the reason this final verse resonates with such confidence and assurance is because having experienced the goodness of, of the Lord up to this point in his life as David looks ahead to the future he tells us that he is absolutely certain that God's goodness and God's mercy in his life will not cease but will continue until he is safely home in glory meaning in heaven where he'll dwell he says with the Lord forever see Psalm 23 is David's testimony to the fact that God has been such a wonderful and kind shepherd to him. And what makes Psalm 23 so unique is that, as you know, prior to becoming the king of Israel, David had been a shepherd himself, watching over his father's flock. Yet in writing this psalm, David doesn't write as a shepherd. He writes as one of the Lord's sheep. So that Psalm 23 is written from the standpoint of a very grateful and very satisfied member of the flock. That's really the gist of Psalm 23. As one of the Lord's sheep, David takes up his pen, and he writes this psalm in order to let us know that his divine shepherd has been so incredibly kind to him by providing everything he needs to carry on a healthy relationship with him. And that's why he begins this psalm with those now famous words, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He's content. He has no wants because God has provided everything he needs. And so from verse 2 until verse 5, David tells us exactly what the Lord has provided for him so that he can continue walking in the warmth and the smile of his fellowship. Using the language of a shepherd in his relationship to one of his sheep, David unfolds what God has provided for him with the first thing he says being peace, rest, in his heart so that like a literal sheep who feels so safe and so secure knowing that his shepherd is there to care for him that he feels comfortable enough to just lie down and to rest in green pastures and quiet waters. Normally sheep are not like that. They're very nervous type of animals but here He's comfortable enough to lie down. And so David says, I'm like that too. I'm at rest in the Lord. Verse 2, he makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. But knowing how prone he is to wander from his shepherd into sin, David tells us that the Lord also provides something else for him. He provides restoration restoration for his soul when he strays from his shepherd and goes into sin verse 3 he restores my soul he guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake because the Lord loves David so much David says that when he wanders his shepherd cares for him enough that he goes after him He goes after him to restore his soul. And he does this by convicting him of his sin and bringing him to repentance. And once that happens, his shepherd returns him to the fold and to his fellowship so that he is now once again following the Lord where he should be. But in following his shepherd, David finds that at times he's called to follow the Lord through some very dangerous Paths, which he calls the valley of the shadow of death, which as we saw last week is a reference to those dark and shadowy valleys in the country of Israel. But in a broader sense, they refer to those dark and difficult times of uncertainty that we all at some point go through. David reveals that in spite of the dangers involved in going through these very dark valleys, he's not afraid, he's not fearful, he's not anxious, he's not fretting, because God meets his great need for protection. And thus he says in verse 4, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you're with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Knowing that his shepherd is right beside him, David says that he's not fearful, he's not worried, he's not anxious, because he knows that his shepherd is there to protect him from his enemies. And finally, after completing his journey through those very dark valleys, David tells us that his shepherd, knowing that he just must be exhausted from all of that difficult traveling and in need of a good meal, some good refreshment, he leads him to his own home. He takes him home, where as a gracious host, his shepherd ministers to his physical needs by providing food and water and olive oil to renew his strength. And so he says in verse 5. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You have anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. So folks, this has been David's testimony to the Lord being his shepherd. He wants all of us to know that God has been just so good to him by meeting every one of his needs. And David's purpose in telling us this, his reason for even writing Psalm 23 is so that we will know that what the Lord has done for him, he does for all of his people So that if you are one of of Christ's sheep by faith in him, then he gives you rest in your heart. He restores your soul. He protects you from your enemy and he meets your physical needs. But having read all of these wonderful things that David has said about his shepherd, at this point we are faced. We are faced with an all-important question. We know that God is a tender and kind shepherd. David has clearly told us this. But what he hasn't told us is how long will God's tenderness and kindness to us last? Will the Lord ever grow tired of caring for us as his sheep? Because after all, sheep are pretty dumb. And like them, we do a lot of dumb and foolish and sinful things. So, will God ever grow weary of shepherding us, providing for our needs? In other words, will we ever reach a point in our lives where the Lord will just stop supplying for what we need? That is to say, will he ever withdraw his shepherding care from us? Well, that's the question, and that's the issue that was apparently on David's mind as he decided to bring Psalm 23 to a close, because... In this final verse, he talks about what will happen to him all the days of his life. Meaning all the days ahead of him. Those days that he has yet to to live out. In other words, the rest of his life from this moment on. See, David has already told us how good God has been to him. But only up to this point in his life. But now he proceeds to tell us how God is going to treat him in the future and not just his future on earth. He takes it even further by speaking about what will happen to him when he dies, when his days on earth come to an end and eternity begins for him. And what David concludes is that his shepherd will never abandon him. His shepherd will never stop taking care of him. His shepherd will never cease from shepherding him and meeting his needs because he knows That for the rest of his life, and even after his life on earth ends, that the Lord will still be there for him, meeting his needs. And what is it that David needs as he faces the future? Well, that's the subject of this final verse of this psalm, as David tells us that he is confident that whatever the future holds, he knows that God will continue being his shepherd, and therefore will continue providing for him. And what the Lord will provide for him from this point on... Folks, it's the greatest thing that a man needs from him. The greatest thing that a woman needs from him. And that is his kindness. His kindness. Verse 6. Surely goodness and loving kindness... Will follow me all the days of my life... And I'll dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Now as David brings this masterpiece of a psalm to a close... He draws a conclusion about the Lord... Based upon what he already knows about his shepherd knowing that God has always been good to him and has always treated him with such kindness so as to meet every one of his needs David knows he knows that he can count on God's goodness and loving kindness following him all the days of his life now we know that this is what David is saying in this verse because we can all read his words and they're not obscure They're rather clear. But what we want to do is take it a step further. And that is to understand what David means by what he says. And that requires us to do some thinking. That is always the point of biblical preaching. To try to understand and then teach what the writer means by what he says. Now, to begin with then, it's important to notice that David starts this sentence with the word surely. Now, this particular Hebrew word can be translated into English one of two ways, either as only or as surely. And those who think that it should be translated as only, they believe that what David is saying is that in the future, only God's goodness and only his mercy will follow him to the exclusion of all other things, including adversity. In other words, God's kindness to him will be so great that anything else like adversity, like trials, like suffering, like sorrows, they're not even worthy of being considered or being mentioned because it just will not be his experience. Folks, this cannot be what David is saying because the Bible teaches that adversity is a reality for every single believer. And as we read the Psalms that David wrote, and he wrote most of the Psalms, and as we read about David's life in the Old Testament, we see that David was very much aware that his remaining days would be filled with all kinds of problems and difficulties and disappointments and sorrows. In fact, God specifically told David that his life was not going to be easy. We read in 2 Samuel chapter 12, starting in verse 9. Why have you despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, have taken his wife to be your wife, and have killed him with the sword of the sons of Ammon. Now therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you've despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you from your own household. I'll even take your wives before your eyes and give them to your companion, and he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. Now what we read here is that God is telling David that he is going to discipline him severely for his sin with Bathsheba and against her husband, Uriah the Hittite. And he's going to do it by giving him a great deal of adversity. And notice that this discipline will be long. It'll continue throughout David's lifetime. In other words, David would experience continual violence related to his family just as he had been violent in making sure that Uriah was killed by the sword. And because David had done evil to Uriah's family, so David would experience evil in his own family. That's exactly what the word of God tells us happened. One of David's sons violated one of his daughters, a stepsister. Another son killed his own brother. And then that same son, Absalom, rebelled against David and almost killed him and destroyed his kingdom. And in addition, because David's sin with Bathsheba was of a sensual nature, Absalom would have relations with David's concubines during his rebellion. So, going back then. To Psalm 23 we know that in light of all the horrible things God told David would take place in his life David couldn't possibly mean that only God's goodness and mercy would follow him and nothing else of a negative nature because his life was filled with all kinds of things of a negative nature you see what David means by the statement surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life is that in spite of of all the adverse circumstances he knows will be his experience. In spite of all of that, he is absolutely certain and has no doubt that God's goodness and God's loving kindness will also be there following him throughout the remaining days he has to live. Now this is a truth that we have to stop and really think about and we have to ponder And we have to digest this for ourselves because all of us, if we are honest, would have to admit that there are times we've had trouble believing that God is being good and kind to us when we've gone through tough times and suffered a great deal. In fact, sometimes when we are going through a hard and painful trial, it's far easier to believe that God is sovereign and powerful than it is to believe that he is good and loving. So let's consider How to understand David's words when he says, surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. Well, to begin with, it's important to understand the actual meaning of these two words, goodness and loving kindness or mercy. The Hebrew word for goodness essentially means that which enhances and promotes one's welfare, something that's beneficial, something that's helpful. And the Hebrew word that's translated loving kindness or it could be translated mercy means exactly what it sounds like, kindness, favor, steadfast love. In fact, this word actually comes from another Hebrew word that means to bend or to bow down, to get low, to incline oneself. So the thought then behind this word is that God's love for us is condescending in the sense that he stoops. He bends low to serve us by being kind and merciful to us, extending his grace and his favor to us. So then what David is saying is that he is absolutely sure that throughout his lifetime, right up to the day that he dies, God's goodness, those things that will promote his welfare and God's loving kindness, his acts of compassion and grace will follow him. And by follow him, David doesn't mean that they will just nonchalantly or casually tag along as if they have nothing better to do. So the word that David chose to use for follow, it means to pursue. It means to chase someone, to go hard after them. It's the same word that's often used in the Old Testament to speak of military troops pursuing each other. So what David then is saying is that God is so determined to extend his Goodness and his kindness to him that he won't ever let him out of his loving care. The Lord will make sure that he continually pursues David with his goodness and mercy up to the very day that he dies. Charles Spurgeon called these two divine virtues of goodness and mercy God's twin guardian angels. Spurgeon said this, he said, these two guardian angels will always be with me at my back and my beck. Just as when great princes go abroad, they must not go unattended, so it is with the believer. Goodness and mercy follow him always, all the days of his life, the black days as well as the bright days, the days of fasting as well as the days of feasting, the dreary days of winter as well as the bright days of summer. So then, folks, the question we're faced with is, how is it that God's goodness ...and loving kindness follow us so diligently... ...and yet at the same time we can suffer so much. How do we reconcile God's kindness to us... ...when we are experiencing so much pain? Well, first of all, it's important to understand that... ...this reality of experiencing both God's kindness... ...and suffering pain at the same time... ...is an experience that is only found... ...only found in the life of someone who's a true believer... In Jesus Christ. See David is speaking as one of the Lord's sheep. And he's speaking to others who are part of the same flock of believers. That's an essential point to understand. Because he's not saying that goodness and mercy follow someone who has rejected the Lord. And who has rejected salvation. So we understand that this is the unique experience of a redeemed individual. Someone who has experienced conversion... And who knows Christ as their Lord and Savior. I really wouldn't expect an unbeliever to have any understanding of what David is talking about. None at all. To those who are without Christ, suffering and tragedies are usually interpreted as God either not being powerful enough to stop them. Or God being powerful but not being loving and good enough to stop them from occurring. Or as one person I remember reading about years ago when asked how to understand a great tragedy that had befallen some children, this person said, well, I guess God made a mistake this time. You see, a true believer in Christ would never think, let alone say such a thing. Because he knows that God is perfect, perfectly holy and righteous, and therefore he never makes a mistake. He never makes an error. He also knows that God... Is sovereign and God is powerful as well as God is loving. But knowing these truths doesn't mean that we don't struggle at times with trying to reconcile why a loving God who promises to have goodness and loving kindness follow us all the days of our lives, why he would still, in his sovereign plan, send us pain and suffering at the same time. So how do we biblically navigate our way through this? Well, it's necessary to know that whenever we are tempted to doubt God's goodness and God's loving kindness, we can always trace that temptation to doubt right back to Satan, the devil himself. And we know that these doubts come from the enemy of our souls because right at the very beginning of mankind's history... In Satan's conversation with Eve in the Garden of Eden, he blatantly, blatantly accused God of not being loving, of not having our first parents' best interest at heart. Here's what we read in Genesis chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent from the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden God has said you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. The serpent said to the woman you surely will not die for God knows that in the day you eat from it your eyes will be opened and you'll be like him knowing good and evil. Now notice the devil's progression of evil. First he tempted Eve to doubt her understanding of God's word. Has God really said that you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? In other words, you must be mistaken, Eve, in your interpretation of what God said to you and to Adam because that just doesn't sound right. Would God really tell you not to eat from a certain tree in his garden? It just doesn't sound right, Eve. Then after the initial temptation to doubt the word of God... He moved on to an outright denial of the word of God. He said it's not true. Satan being the liar that he is said you surely will not die. You surely will not die. God said you will die. Satan said you surely will not die. And he meant spiritual death at that moment. At that moment they didn't die physically. He meant spiritual death. And then finally Satan accused God of not caring about Adam and Eve. Insinuating that if God did care about you, Eve, then He certainly wouldn't hold this fruit back from you. You see, Eve, He doesn't want your eyes to be open because that would make you very similar to God in terms of knowing good and evil. And He doesn't want you to be like Him. He's an egomaniac. He only cares about Himself. So, in forbidding you of this, He's withholding something good from you because, Eve, God is not good. Now that's how the devil tempted tempted, and he deceived Eve. And that perfectly fits his evil character because the Bible says that Satan is a liar and a murderer from the very beginning. And he was lying about God not being good when he spoke to Eve. And listen, he lies to you whenever he whispers in your heart that God can possibly love you or else he wouldn't let you suffer so much. You see, in contrast to what Satan says about God's love and goodness, which are all lies, Scripture, speaking absolute truth, emphatically declares that God in his character and in his essential nature is good. And because he is good, he does good for his people. Psalm 34, verse 8. O taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Psalm 31, verse 19, How great is your goodness which you have stored up for those who fear you. Psalm 25, verse 8, Good and upright is the Lord. And you recall Jesus told the rich young ruler, No one is good but one, that is God. God is good. In addition, Scripture says that God is loving and that he demonstrates his love to his people as well as his goodness. Psalm 32 verse 10, He who trusts in the Lord, loving kindness shall surround him. It doesn't just follow, folks, it surrounds us. No matter how difficult a time you may be going through, God promises never to remove or take back His loving kindness from you. Because His loving kindness encompasses you, it surrounds you, and it will always follow you, it will always be there for you. Listen to these precious words of Isaiah 54 verse 10. For the mountains may be removed and the hills may shake, but my loving kindness will not be removed from you. Let me paraphrase that for you. When you feel like your life is falling apart, my loving kindness will be there for you. It will not be removed. When other things are removed, my loving kindness will not be removed. That's the essence of thought. Of course, the greatest demonstration and the greatest proof of God's love for us is found in the cross of Jesus Christ namely his sacrificial substitutionary atoning death Romans 5 8 but God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners Christ died for us the apostle John expands on God's redemptive love for us in Christ when he said in first John 4 9 and 10 by this the love of God was manifested to us that God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation or the satisfaction for our sins. So, if all of this is true, and it is, that God is good and God is loving and God is kind, then I raise again the question, why do we suffer so much Why do we experience so much calamity, so much grief, so much heartache in our lives? I mean, if goodness and mercy are so busy chasing after us, then why do we still face the pain of illness, of betrayal, of financial crisis, of loneliness, of the death of a precious loved one, of disasters, of laming accidents, of incurable diseases, and any other type of suffering imaginable? Why? Well, frankly, the answer is we don't always know why we suffer. We don't always know why we suffer. Sometimes we just have to honestly admit that we don't know why God sends suffering into our lives and how that suffering works together with his goodness and love following hard after us. We don't want to be like Job's friends who thought that they had all the answers. They thought that they knew what was going on in Job's life and they offered him all kinds of advice, all kinds of counsel, but they were absolutely clueless. They didn't know what they were talking about. In his book, Is God Really in Control? Author Jerry Bridges writes this about suffering when we don't understand and we cannot see the benefit to it. He said, does God explain to us what he's doing in adversity? There is no indication that God ever explained to Job the reasons for all of his terrible sufferings. As readers, we're taken behind the scenes to observe the spiritual warfare between God and Satan. But as far as we can tell from Scripture, God never told Job about this. And folks, there are times when God doesn't make it clear to us either why if he is so good And he's so loving why we experience so much pain in our lives. But what we do know, what we do know is that there is a reason. That's what we know. And that in spite of your pain, God knows what he's doing. Even if he doesn't reveal the reason to you. You see, one of the great truths taught in scripture, one of the key truths of any time in our lives, but especially a time of calamity is to focus on what we know to be true and not what we don't understand. That's really one of the great lessons of the book of Habakkuk. Habakkuk did not understand what was going on as a foreign nation was about to crush his nation. But you read through Habakkuk and you'll see that he works through all of this and ultimately in the end he says, I'll focus on what I know to be true about God and not what I don't understand. That's what will help you to get through all of this. This is why God calls us to trust him with all of our heart and not to lean on our own understanding. And this is why Spurgeon once said, when we cannot see the hand of God, we can trust the heart of God. And he could say that with absolute certainty because of what Isaiah 55 verses 8 and 9 tell us about God. God says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Commenting on these magnificent words, one Bible teacher said, the implication is that just as the heavens are so high above the earth that by human standards their height cannot be be measured. So also are God's ways and thoughts so above those of man that they cannot be grasped by man in their fullness. In other words, the ways and the thoughts of God are incomprehensible to man. Listen, there are times when we just don't understand how to reconcile God's love with the pain he has sent into our lives. But we don't have to reconcile that. And we don't even have to understand it because the Apostle Paul said we walk by faith." and not by sight. Remember, we cling to what we know to be true, not what we don't understand. See, the only way to have peace in the midst of such pain is to apply your faith. The Lord has given every believer faith. That's why we're believers. To apply our faith, to really believe in your heart that what God says in his word is true, that his twin virtues of goodness and mercy are really following you, even when you can't see them and doubts are assaulting you. You hold fast with all of your strength to the truth that God being wise has sent this pain into your life for a good reason, a reason that he alone knows and deems necessary. Remember the great truth of Deuteronomy 29:29: the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever. Sometimes our suffering and our pain belong to the secret things of the Lord. And he just hasn't revealed his purpose for them. But you can be assured that he does have a purpose for them. These are not arbitrary things that go on. He has a purpose. Once again, listen to these very helpful words from Jerry Bridges. If we are to experience peace in our souls in times of adversity, we must come to the place where we truly believe that God's ways are simply beyond us and stop asking him why or even trying to determine it ourselves. This may seem like an intellectual cop-out or refusal to deal with the really tough issues of life. In fact, it's just the opposite. It's a surrender to the truth about God and our circumstances as it is revealed to us by God in his inspired word. So there are times when we suffer and may never understand why or how God's kindness fits with that suffering, at least not in this lifetime. But then, then there are other times when God does give us some insight and some explanation concerning the purpose for our sufferings. For example, we know that sometimes he brings suffering into our lives in order to demonstrate his power and his glory and to accomplish his sovereign purposes in a larger scale than we could ever imagine at the time. We see this clearly in the incident of Jesus raising his friend Lazarus from the dead. As you'll recall from the story found in John chapter 11, when Jesus heard that his friend Lazarus was ill, he did not rush to heal him, he let him die. Now Jesus healed many other people, but not Lazarus. He let him die. He could have just spoken a word even if he wasn't by the location of Lazarus and he could have been healed. But he didn't. He let him die. And the sisters of Lazarus, Martha and Mary, were obviously disappointed and hurt and didn't understand why the Lord would let his friend and their brother die. But Jesus did let Lazarus die. Why? Well, for two reasons. First, and he reveals this in his word, and that's the point I'm making. First, so that his deity and divine power would be demonstrated to his disciples by raising Lazarus from the dead. I mean, whoever heard of someone being raised from the dead? But they saw it. Notice what the Lord told them in John eleven fourteen and 15, concerning his reason for letting Lazarus die and not healing him. So we read, So Jesus then said to them, them being his disciples, Plainly, Lazarus is dead. And I'm glad for your sakes I was not there. Why? Here's the reason. So that you may believe. But let's go to him. In other words, Jesus let Lazarus die so that in raising him from the dead, his disciples would come to believe that he was the Messiah and the Son of God. That's why. Listen, it may very well be that God has brought great pain and suffering into your life in order to bring someone to faith in Christ. That may be his plan. He certainly does that at times and he can do it through your pain as well. In addition, Jesus let Lazarus die because his raising of Lazarus was all part of his sovereign plan to bring about his own death which ultimately resulted in our salvation, the greatest good that could ever come to us. I won't take the time to read it, but in John chapter 11, verses 47 through 53, we read that the Sanhedrin, after the raising of Lazarus from the dead, the Sanhedrin, the Jewish high council, was called, led by the wicked man, who was the high priest at the time, Caiaphas, to figure out what to do. Because they said, all men are believing in him, so we've got to kill this Jesus. We've got to kill him. We've got to eliminate him. And from that point on, we read that they began to devise a plot to murder Jesus. Now, that was an evil thing to do. But out of that evil, out of that horror, out of that great, great horrific thing happening, the death of Christ, the murder of the innocent one, the murder of the most precious one in the universe... We have our salvation. Goodness and mercy has followed. See the same thing in the sufferings of Joseph in the Old Testament. In Genesis we read about Joseph, one of Jacob's sons who suffered greatly. First his jealous and evil brothers, they sell him into slavery. And he ends up in Egypt where his master's wife lies and maliciously accuses him of trying to physically violate her. So he's thrown into prison where he becomes a forgotten man. And at this point in his life, who could blame Joseph if he wondered why God would send so much suffering and pain into his life? But eventually it all becomes clear to Joseph because through divine providence he is released from prison to interpret a dream Pharaoh had. And Pharaoh is so impressed with Joseph that he makes him prime minister of the nation of Egypt so that he is now in the position to save the entire Jewish nation. Nation from dying due to starvation from a worldwide famine. And so we read in Genesis 50 verse 20, Joseph's own testimony to how, though he suffered a great deal of pain, how God's goodness and God's loving kindness never stopped following him. Joseph said this to his brothers, you meant evil against me. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. Now folks, though sometimes we can look back and see specifically what God and his kindness intended to accomplish and did accomplish by our suffering, there are other times when we just have to be content with knowing that our suffering is producing sanctification and spiritual growth in our lives, as Romans chapter 8, verses 28 and 29 tell us. Paul said, and we know that God causes all things, and that would be the bad things as well as the neutral things, and even the good things, to work together for good to those who love God to those who are called according to his purpose. And how is God using all things to work together for our good? Well, he tells us, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son. This is one of the reasons we go through such suffering, to become more like Christ in our character. So what is the spiritual growth, this conformity to the image of Christ? What does it look like? Well, for one thing, it results in turning us to the Word of God so that we recommit ourselves to learning and obeying Scripture. Psalm 119, verse 67 says, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your Word. Psalm 119, verse 71. It's good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. Suffering in our lives produces a new and a renewed devotion to the Word of God. You see, suffering often gets our attention like nothing else does. It drives us back to the Bible. It drives us back to God. And it tends to give us new insight into the Word. It was Martin Luther, the German reformer, who supposedly said, were it not for tribulation, I should not understand the Scriptures. I get that. I've given this message similar. Many years ago, and someone said uh, about that in the earlier service, and I said, yes, I gave it intellectually, now I give it experientially. Spiritual growth in the midst of suffering also results in being more humbled by our suffering. It results in being more dependent on the Lord as we see our sinful weaknesses like we've never seen Before It results in being more compassionate as we learn to be sensitive and thoughtful towards others who are suffering too. So regardless of of what you know or don't know concerning why God has let you suffer so much, the bottom line is that you must trust the Lord, as David did, being confident that God's goodness and mercy are following hard after you. Never to leave you all the days of your life, so that when you are old and you come to the end of your life, you'll be able to look back and testify that God has always been kind to you. He's been faithful. Just as David testified in Psalm 37, verse 25, I've been young and now I'm old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken. And folks, that's the same point that David is making here in Psalm 23 that this wonderful shepherd of his, who has been so kind as to give him peace in his heart, restoration of his soul, protection from his enemies, and physical refreshment to sustain life, he will continue to be kind to him until he draws his final breath. But what happens after that? What happens after one of the Lord's sheep dies? At that point, does God stop providing? For his sheep because, well, their, life, their lives are over. Well, David tells us what happens by telling us in the final words of Psalm 23 what he knew was going to happen to him after he died. Verse 6 at the end says, And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. What a magnificent way to end this magnificent psalm. David still, talking about God's kindness, He tells us that even when he dies, the Lord will continue to be kind to him because at death he'll be ushered into the Lord's presence where he will dwell with him in his house forever. You see, in referring to the house of the Lord, David isn't talking about living in the temple in Jerusalem because the temple hadn't been built yet. It wouldn't be built until after his death when his son Solomon built it. Besides, this can't possibly be a reference of the temple on earth because no one could live there forever. David said he'll live there forever. So when David says that he'll live in the house of the Lord forever, meaning literally throughout the years or for all time, he's referring to God's house in heaven. The place that Jesus called his father's house where he said there were many rooms. In other words, David knew that God's goodness and loving kindness would never stop following him. He knew that they would follow him all the days of his life and then when he died they would follow him right into God's presence where he would spend all of eternity. You see folks David is using the expression the house of the Lord to speak of heaven. He was absolutely certain that after death he would go to heaven and that's the kind of certainty every believer in Jesus Christ can and should have. Our Lord said this to his troubled disciples in John 14, verses 2 and 3. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. I love that phrase. If it were not so, I would have told you, because I always speak the truth. For I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Now listen closely the reason that there is a place in heaven prepared for those who have believed in Jesus is because in leaving his disciples the Lord was telling them that he was leaving them to die on the cross for their sins you see in his death on the cross Jesus was taking the place of those who would come to believe in him so that he would be judged by the father in their place as their substitute the wrath that we deserved and still deserve because of our sins, he took upon himself as our substitute sin bearer so that we could be forgiven of all of our sins and be finally reconciled to God. And that's why God's goodness and mercy will follow a believer all the days of his life and then they will follow him right into glory, right into heaven where he'll dwell with the Lord forever. Now, that's our certain hope. And when I say hope, when the Bible says hope, it doesn't mean it's wishful thinking. It means a certainty of hope, a confidence of hope. That's our sure future. And that's something that every Christian should be looking forward to with immense eagerness to be in heaven. Sadly, though, that's not always the case. And there's a reason why some Christians are not eagerly anticipating heaven. And that's because, note this, they have the wrong view of heaven. They have a very unbiblical view of heaven. See, some believers view heaven as a place where their existence will be somewhat boring and dull as they envision themselves floating around doing tedious tasks for all of eternity. Nothing could be further from the truth. Nothing. Randy Alcorn, who has authored a fantastic book on heaven. If you don't have it, you should get it. He also wrote an article a few years ago in which he explains how exciting heaven will be. Here's what Randy Alcorn said. He said, Home as a term for heaven isn't simply a metaphor. It describes an actual physical place, a place of fond familiarity and comfort and refuge. Scripture often speaks of banquets and feasts in heaven. We'll sit at tables with people we love, and above all, with Jesus we love. Revelation 21 and 22 tell us that God will bring heaven down to this new earth by coming down to dwell there with his people. There will be natural wonders, a great river and the tree of life producing different fruit every month. We should anticipate great sights and sounds and smells and tastes and delightful conversations. On that new world, his servants will serve him. That means things to do, places to go, people to see. As resurrected people, we'll live on the new earth, not a a non-earthly angelic realm for disembodied spirits. We'll live in our resurrected bodies on a resurrected earth where the resurrected Jesus will rule on the throne of the new earth's capital city, a resurrected Jerusalem. We will reign with him as righteous people ruling the earth to God's glory. That was exactly his design from the beginning. The Bible begins and ends with God and humanity in perfect fellowship on earth. Because we've already lived on earth, I think it will seem from the very first that we're coming home. The new earth will strike us as familiar. Because it will be like the old earth raised as our bodies will be our old bodies raised. The new earth will be the home we've always longed for. When we grasp the reality of the new earth, our present lives suddenly matter. Conversations with loved ones matter. Work, leisure, creativity and intellectual stimulation matter. Laughter matters. Service matters. Why? Because they are eternal. Our present life on earth matters, not because it's the only life we have, but precisely because it isn't. It's the beginning of a life that will continue without end. Amen. Praise God. And beloved, this life, this life that will continue will forever be filled with God's goodness and loving kindness, but only for you if you've trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior during this lifetime. After you die, it's, it's too late. This is the only opportunity you'll ever have to trust Christ. This lifetime, When you come to Christ for salvation not only will he forgive all of your sins and fill that emptiness in your life but he'll shepherd you with his goodness his loving kindness until the day you die and then he'll take you to heaven and give you more of his goodness and loving kindness forever. So before it's too late I urge you come to him. Come to him. Place your trust in Christ as your savior believe on him believe that his death was for you and trust him as his death being the sole basis for your salvation be saved from God's wrath today begin to experience his goodness and his mercy if you'd like to speak to one of our pastors about this if God has dealt with you in your heart you're convicted of your sin you know you need Christ then just come up when we close the service in a moment and see me And if you already are a believer, then God's word to you is to trust him. Even as you experience deep pain and sorrow and suffering, trust him because his goodness and his loving kindness, they're following you and they'll continue to follow you right into glory. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. What would we do without your word, Lord? And what would we do without the cross? We can say with the Apostle Paul, we are down, but we are not in despair. And we're not in despair because of the great hope due to the cross. The great hope, Lord, not only the cross, but the resurrection, that you proved to be exactly who you claimed to be, the Son of God. You rose from the dead, and Lord, we believe that. I pray for any here who've never placed their trust in Christ As Lord and Savior, I pray that today might be the day of their salvation. And I pray for those who are hurting, those who are grieving, those who are in deep sorrow. I pray, Lord, that your word would bring great hope and encouragement. Lord, we thank you that your goodness surrounds us and follows us. We thank you that your loving kindness surrounds us and follows us. And even though there are dark valleys, you're still there. You're still there. And you never change. So Lord, help us to walk by faith, not by our emotions, not by sight, but by faith in you. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.